very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look, right across the board, oh. eleven, oh, eleven, and most of eleven, the and amps go up to ten. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not ten. You see, most most blokes are going to be playing at ten. You're on ten here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on ten on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Unlike amplifiers, human beings do not go up to 11. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the hedonic treadmill and the culture we're all in. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. It's going to be a long time before we go to conferences again at the drop of a hat but I'd like to invite you to an online conference, not one with speakers who are simply talking at a camera, but one that features you. The Real Skills Conference is back. You can find out the details at realskillsconference.com. It's two hours. It takes place around the world, and it's by and for you. It's about real skills. Some people call them soft skills, the stuff that truly matters when we seek to make change happen. It's about interaction, small group breakouts, and transformation. We've done it twice before, and it works. Check out realskillsconference.com for all the details. The hedonic treadmill is the name given for the way human beings pursue pleasure, whatever form of pleasure it is that they seek. It turns out that people, some people, not all people, want more more of whatever gave them happiness the last time. So here's the question we begin with. Jeff Bezos has a thousand times as much money as someone with $10 million. Do we think Jeff is a thousand times happier than someone with $10 million? Or consider the marathon runner who finishes a marathon in two hours and 30 minutes. Are they happier than someone who finishes the marathon in three hours? Well, Maybe, if their goal was to win the race, if their goal was to run a personal best. But if the person who ran the marathon in three hours was used to doing a four-hour marathon or was used to losing and had just won, I think we would argue that the person who ran the three-hour marathon, at least today, is happier. Free climbing is the activity of going up the side of a mountain with no ropes, This is a fairly foolhardy endeavor if the side of the mountain is particularly steep or particularly tall. If you free climb safely, it's entirely possible that you will now want to free climb less safely. And then perhaps you will continue to free climb less and less safely, seeking to get to 11, seeking the thrill of survival until one day you lose the game. The hedonic treadmill is responsible for many elements of our culture. There are two things that create culture. One is when people accidentally have side effects to their pursuit 
of this sort of happiness. And the second is where actually changing the culture is the thing that is giving the person on the hedonic treadmill satisfaction. The reason all of this is a problem, because lots of creatures experience the hedonic treadmill. Lots of creatures will eat something until they are sick. Lots of creatures will head out to do something that makes them happy. But human beings have built a culture and technology in that culture to amplify it. So if you got a certain satisfaction out of having a little bit of plastic surgery, the question is, do you decide that you will get more satisfaction by having more plastic surgery? And then how many times do you need to go to the plastic surgeon before even you acknowledge it was all a mistake? Because there are side effects. It's permanent. There was an industry there just waiting for you to come back with money eager to go under the knife to do it again. Or something as simple as snack food. We are hardwired evolutionarily to want dense calories and fats to help people on the savanna survive. However, once you start pursuing that, once you associate high calorie density and fats with pleasure, with belonging, with comfort, then there is an industry that exists to sell you more of it. We can call that weaponizing. If we weaponize the food, what we've done is turn it from nutrition into something that goes on your treadmill until the next thing you know, you're slamming back a Pepsi because they've made the top of the bottle wide enough that you can drink 16 ounces all at once until the next thing we know, we have scientists who are dedicating their lives to crunch and to the way fat satisfies us. These people are doing it because they're getting paid to do it. They're getting paid to do it by industrialists who are on a hedonic treadmill because they already have enough cash. They already have enough resources to happily survive. But by their measure, it's not happy because they're not winning. Like the person who needs a personal best at the marathon, like the person that wants to win, we have created a culture where people who are very talented, who are very driven, are all competing on one axis. If you want to ruin a certain kind of billionaire's day, all you need to do is hand them the Forbes for 100 list. There didn't used to be a list of the richest people in the world, and now there is. A bunch of years ago, not too long ago, Forbes magazine decided it would be great link bait, before there was link bait, to publish a list of the richest people in the world. Some of the data is made up. Some people lobby to be on the list. Others work overtime to not be noticed by the list. But here's the thing. You can ruin a billionaire's day, not all billionaires, but most of them, by showing them that they haven't moved up on the list, that they've in fact moved down. That one of the things that we can assert about people who make it to the billionaire's list is they like being billionaires, that they are on a hedonic treadmill, keeping score of something that is actually meaningless in every other element of their life, except for the story they tell themselves. And now, thanks to that list and others like it, other people are telling themselves a story about that person as well. So they are all competing to move up on a list because the difference between $5 billion and $50 billion is no difference at all. There is nothing 
a person with $5 billion wants that they can't get but could get if they had $50 billion, except for one thing, the feeling of being up on the list. When people are pursuing a treadmill that hurts no one or even themselves, it's really hard to criticize that. That if you're spending half an hour a day playing Scrabble or chess against the computer, trying to beat your personal best, that's called a hobby, a pastime. It's something that gives us pleasure and hurts no one. Other times, there are things we call addictions, whether it's something like going for too much plastic surgery or finding comfort in a bag of chips that leads to problems associated with your weight, what we see in those situations is someone hurting themselves, but no one else. And the third situation is what happens when the treadmill leads to hurting the culture itself. In the 1970s, some very rich industrialists got together and decided to start lobbying against taxation, to start lobbying against regulation. These wealthy families did not need freedom from taxation and regulation in order to pay their bills, in order to find happiness of any kind, other than winning a game. And then winning the game became a game that a lot of people in that circle wanted to play. And what we ended up with was a shift to the culture, so that in order for some people to win a game that they decided would be their treadmill, they chose to change the entire culture. And so we see that culture is often the side effect of what happens when humans choose to pursue their goals. I'm not just picking on billionaires here. Consider somebody whose treadmill is all about being the class clown. When you're the class clown in third grade or fifth grade or ninth grade, you get satisfaction from making the class laugh, from showing that you have power over the teacher and the system. But then some people choose to go to 11 and then more and then more. If you end up with a career as a stand-up comic, it's one thing to say, I want to practice my craft. I like being in front of people and doing my work. It's another to say, I can't find satisfaction unless there's more people in the crowd than there were last week. I can't find satisfaction unless they're laughing harder than they were last week. Because the problem with treadmills like this is you will hit the wall. You will hit the wall because you have stopped keeping track of the thing that got you in the game in the first place and now are obsessed simply with winning and with personal best. This gets particularly poignant when we think about people whose treadmill is about dominance, is about bullying, is about lying, is about getting away with things and about beating other people. Because as you can imagine, when you turn this up to 11, you need to victimize more people. You need to play on an ever bigger stage. You need bigger stakes. You need to do more damage. Every James Bond villain in history is the victim of a poorly chosen hedonic treadmill. This is gold, Mr. Bond. All my life I've been in love with its color, its brilliance, its divine heaviness. I welcome any enterprise that will increase my stock. Working their way up, from petty crime to world domination. Now, of course, that's fiction, but it happens in the real world as well. And so when we see people who finally hit the wall, who get arrested or shamed or fail because they've gone 
too far. We shake our head and say, why did they keep going? Why did they need to keep hurting people? And the answer is because they were trying to turn it up to 11. So what's our opportunity? Our opportunity is to choose our treadmill wisely. We can choose a treadmill that hurts no one, that no one even knows about. That's our personal hobby, our craft, the thing we find satisfaction in, the thing where it's sort of harmless to turn it up to 11. If it leads to an attic crammed with stuff, dangerous living conditions, too much debt, well then, then we haven't chosen as wisely as we could. Often, industry, sometimes even marketers, are pushing us to pick the wrong treadmill. Or once we pick a treadmill, to race down it ever harder. The merchants of debt do this all the time. There is a significant portion of the population that believes that a high interest rate on interest is better than a low one when they're in debt because more must be better. There are a huge number of people who, no matter what their credit limit is on their credit card, will go right to that credit limit. They're on a bizarre, painful, hedonic treadmill, seeking to go to 11 111 is impossible. And in return, they're ending up with a lifetime of debt. Instead, we can say, wait a minute, I can get that same satisfaction, press those same buttons by becoming a community activist, by becoming a teacher or a mentor or a coach. I can figure out how to do increasingly difficult challenges that have nothing to do with risking my life climbing a mountain face and everything to do with playing in an arena where my contribution to the culture makes the culture better, and then I get to do it again. So the choice of our treadmill and its impact on the culture around us is profoundly important. And as a community, we've got to figure out what to say to people who have picked the wrong treadmill. Because it's entirely possible their treadmill is fun to watch. It's entirely possible their treadmill creates positive side effects. It's also possible that their treadmill is hurting other people and that they could get the same satisfaction with far fewer side effects. Once we can understand what game people on a treadmill are choosing to play, then we have a chance to help guide them in a way that helps all of us. Because no, each of us is not entitled to our own treadmill, not if it's going to affect anybody else. This is part of our responsibility of being in the culture. Acknowledging that it never goes up to 11, but that part of being human is trying to get it up to 11, is a first step in us understanding that we are always playing this game with ourselves and that we have a chance to put ourselves on a track where our subconscious is working overtime to create outputs that we can be proud of. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. A small aside about marketing in the upcoming marketing seminar. Marketing is not advertising. 
Marketing is what we do when we choose to change the culture. If you are seeking to make things better, if you are seeking to engage with other people and help them get to where you and they want to go, I would argue you are a marketer. If we are looking for connection and justice and change, if we are looking to grow our project, our nonprofit, or our business, we are marketers. And I take this marketing thing really seriously. And I don't believe it has anything to do with advertising or hype or hustle or SEO or tactics or tricks. I think it's about understanding that we each have a chance to lean into this work and make things better by making better things. I hope to see you there. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Thanks, as always, for listening I'd love to hear from you. If you've got a question, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We've gotten some really strong questions recently. I hope you'll keep them coming. The first one was from Andre. I'll summarize it a little bit. Basically, here's Apple with its elegant, polished, semi-closed system where everything is approved, where everything must be sandboxed, where they are clearly in charge, versus something like Android, which is open and in many ways more of the Wild West. For years, Microsoft was plagued with viruses, whereas the Mac had almost none. People ascribe that to the fact that Apple was less open. I think it's important to understand there is a spectrum. The iPhone would have clearly disappeared. It would have been a failure if it weren't for the App Store. It's the App Store, the interoperability of it, that permitted the iPhone to beat Nokia and all the other phones that were on the market at the time. So the question is, where on the spectrum does an organization choose to live? The laissez-faire attitude of Google, which in some ways is a technological hubris of saying, we are really good at tech, we don't have to care about user experience, it'll all sort itself out versus the design hubris of Apple, in which they say, we know everything, we are right, and we will not let others interoperate with us in a way that undermines our rightness, there are clearly places in between. There are clearly places in between where we can create regimes of openness, where people are interacting with each other according to certain rules, and where the end result is something that we are proud to point to. And so we often end up in the middle the extremes are rare. There are very few things that are completely unregulated and open, and there are very few successful things that are completely closed. We have to pick where we're going to be on the spectrum and then do that work in a way that we can be proud of it. Hi, Seth. It's John from Boston. I have a question pertaining to a few themes from across your work. In short, what's your take on the value of a PhD moving forward in the 21st century? If I'm interested in becoming a public policy thought leader, which I am, would a doctor be a good way to stand out since there are relatively few PhDs? Or is the value of a doctorate declining, much like the traditional MBA? Thanks, John. Quick answer for you. A PhD, like many things, is not about what you learn. It's about the signal that you earned by putting in 
the effort. Someone could spend twice as long and go twice as deep and learn a lot more, but not get the piece of paper, which means they don't get the signal. So the challenge is to buy the right signal. If you want to go to work at Goldman Sachs or Bain or McKinsey, don't go to a top 50 business school. It won't help. You got to go to a top four business school because that signal is the one you're seeking. If you're looking to get ahead in your chosen field of public policy, figure out which signal you can send that's well-earned and that pays off for the long haul. I don't think we can generalize more than that. Hi, Seth. It's Silas here from Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, My question is based on the idea of saying no. Uh, When I started this freelance journey, I had to say yes to a lot of things just to kind of get my foot in the door, to get people aware of the fact that I was doing great work and that I could benefit their companies or their organizations. Uh, And I was lucky enough over time to be able to turn down jobs that didn't necessarily sit right with me. Uh, But I'm finding myself now coming out of lockdown in New Zealand and lockdown continuing around the world uh, in a state of having to say yes to more things just to tide myself over and be able to pay the bills. Um, There's one that comes to mind recently where my models really don't sit with the project and I said no to it because my gut feeling was so strong on that. But I'm also really feeling the financial pressure of saying that no and I'm struggling with whether it was the right idea to say no or whether I should have just swallowed my pride and worked on something that I didn't really believe in. My question for you is really, uh, do you have any advice or perspective on how you decide when you're going to turn down opportunities or jobs or, yeah, how, how you shape your perspective and you stay confident in those times where you feel like it's more important in the long term to stick with your gut feeling and stand behind the things you believe in versus making sure there's money in the bank and paying the bills. Thank you so much for all that you do. You've really helped shape my perspective into a flexible, tenacious, and patient experience. And uh, I haven't found that anywhere else. So I'm very, very grateful. Keep doing what you're doing. Much love. Thank you, Silas, for this question. We could talk about this all day long. We may talk about it in a future episode. I think we can differentiate between several kinds of no. The first one is this, and it's one we cover a lot in the Freelancers Workshop, the no of building your career. That when you are busy saying yes to things, you may not realize it, but you're saying no to other things because you're too busy to do them anyway. That what we choose to do when we build a career is invest in what we're working on and not invest in others. So when you start working with a certain kind of client, helping a certain kind of industry, showing up in a certain way, you are defining to the public who you are. You are sending a signal. The second kind of no is the no of morality. I don't want to contribute to this. Here, we need to be really clear about whether we're doing slacktivism or whether we're actually being thoughtful about where our no's appear. And so we have the opportunity to be consistent, to figure out the priority list, to figure out where we are going to have leverage to make things better. And there's lots of discussions about utilitarianism, about where our dollars and our time are best spent. People like Peter Singer have argued that it probably makes sense for someone who's getting paid $500,000 a year to be an investment banker not to quit their job and go work for the Peace Corps but instead 
to send $450,000 to charities that are going to make things better because their comparative advantage enables them to contribute more. And then the third kind of no is the no where someone else is going to do that job no matter what. If it's really true that someone else is going to do that job no matter what, then it's easier to say yes to it. But often we fool ourselves because if every single talented marketer walked away from the cigarette industry, I don't think they would do as well as they do now. Sooner or later, they're going to run out of people and they can start by running out of you. Hi, Seth. This is Spencer from Amsterdam. I was just listening to the industry and its discontents episode, and I have a question. But first, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for this connected journey of musings, insights, and yes, even the rants over the past few weeks about where we go as a culture. Like you said, we're at a crossroads and it's an important conversation. So if we want to build an industry that enables our culture and not the other way around, then I feel that by changing by whom and how startups are funded is a critical part. Ultimately, it feels like the investors are the ones that are geared to enrich Wall Street, so to speak. Living in Amsterdam, I discovered the work of Kate Rayworth, author of The Donut Economies, which is all about how we can reimagine our industries and economies to meet the needs of all people within the boundaries of the planet's resources. And Amsterdam is one of the first cities to adopt this model. What if we could build a venture capital ecosystem around this donor economy idea that would still reward the entrepreneurs for the work that they do, but is more accountable to government or social policies than Wall Street, so to speak? Curious to know your thoughts. Thanks for your work and consistency. Thank you, Spencer, for this question. It gives us a chance to highlight some of the things we've been talking about. Here we go. If someone is going to invest money to take a risk, they need a return on that investment. And the current understanding, the understanding for the last 100 plus years, is that the purpose of the investment is to maximize the return on the investment. People who are investing and getting bigger returns have more money to invest. It crowds out investment that isn't seeking bigger returns. Built into the very dynamic of scarcity and money and investment is this idea of racing for a return. What Milton Friedman and others injected into the culture was the idea that the only purpose of a company is to maximize the return for investors. And by accepting that myth, that unfounded myth, our culture gave up something really important, which is personal responsibility, which is the idea that companies exist to do things other than maximize return. But then other voices show up, like the ones you're talking about, like Jacqueline Novogratz and the idea of patient capital, of investing to make things better, not just to make a return. But the chain continues because sooner or later, the chain connects to the ultimate owner of the assets, and that's someone who's trying to maximize return. So I applaud these efforts to bring back to culture what culture used to have, which is our shared responsibility for how we invest, for what a return even means. But until we get there, and one thing that will help us get there, are the boundaries around what happens for people who play with money, for people who are on the hedonic treadmill of seeking 
to win in the game of money? And the answer, of course, is that you don't get to keep all of your winnings. That if some of the winnings from investment go to improve the culture, to improve schools, to improve health and welfare and community, well, the game will still be the same. People will still seek to invest. But the byproduct of that investment are all sorts of magical side effects, like training the next generation of entrepreneurs, like creating an understanding of what it is to do things around here, like insiders and outsiders, where the insiders are the ones who are investing to make things better. So it's all part of an ecosystem. There isn't one simple solution, but it's obvious to me, at least, that boundaries have to be part of it. Boundaries on what happens to the winnings. Boundaries on what's an okay thing to invest in and what's not. We already have these boundaries. We already have made it so you can't make money doing certain things. We already tax the winnings. The only question is the degree. And what I'm trying to encourage the culture to realize is that it is up to each of us not to accept the rules as is, but instead to move the dial in the direction that benefits the world we seek to live in. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.